Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So I think that the podcast is quickly dividing into the vaccinated and the vaccinated not. We do. <laughs> well, if that's the case, I'm like the marginalized of the marginalized at the back of the line. Curse your good health, Tammy. <laughs> ben got his vaccine today. I got my vaccine this morning, thanks to the good people at Howard University uh, Medical College down near you, Shane. I am so far without any side effects other than a mildly sore arm. And, uh, and a mild sense of superiority. And, Just a little. And no, I, that's not really a side effect. I do intend <laughs> to immediately begin lording it over other people. Can I ask an important question, by the way, about the protocols that were used at this site? Yes. Did they let you in wearing that dog shirt? Um, they did. There were no comments about the dog mm. shirt. Well, they are professionals. They did ask me for ID. Um, which I produced. You mean dog shirt is not enough to immediately they, identify you as Ben Witten? They did not ask the dog shirt for separate ID, <laughs> but perhaps that was because the dog on the dog shirt was uh, so nice and fluffy that, you know, it was all they could do to not pet So it. Tammy, I think now you are justified in saying because Ben has been vaccinated, he has to do all the grocery shopping, all of the external errands because the risk calculus has now shifted. Although it hasn't quite yet because he still needs his second dose and then he needs to wait two weeks after that. So four weeks from now, Ben is going to be doing all the grocery shopping. Don't let him use that cheap excuse, Tammy. (laughs) Screw science. Go shopping, Ben. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the chilly in Alaska edition. I'm Shane. I'm Shane Harris. It would be chilly this time of year in Alaska normally, but it's especially frosty this week. We could have called this the Northern Exposure Edition. Oh, yeah, we missed that opportunity. Yeah. How about the Aurora Borealis Edition? What? Are we just free associating Alaska terms now? Yeah. Yes. I think your vaccine's having side effects. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, have you has anyone here been to Alaska, by the way? Have you all been to Alaska? I have no. never been to Alaska. I have yeah. not. Unimaginably gigantic state. That was my but if I go, I'm not gonna be meeting with Chinese officials. But you can no, see Russia. No, I don't advise it. it. You can. <laughs> You can't yeah. end Wales. I went to Wales. Many people say crazy. that you can see Russia from there. And if you are my uncle, John Turk, you have paddled from Japan to Alaska by kayak. Wait, Ben, do you remember when we tried to produce a podcast with your uncle? Yeah, that, that was good fun. <laughs> like um, two episodes. 
Oh my god, that is some blasphemy. That that is some like that is like some student film kind of crap that we were doing with that. That was so good. one of the episodes is the best podcast uh, story I have ever heard on any subject, and maybe I will use that as my object lesson today. All right, you can have that as your object. You brought it up. I am going to defend the honor of the John Turk podcast by sharing with the audience the world's most awesome podcast. I I had nothing against the podcast per se, which was short lived. Uh, (laughs) I am here in the remote jungle studio, the virtual jungle studio with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Mark Oppen Wittes and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. We are not in Alaska. There are no kayaks, but we're going to talk about Alaska. Okay. We'll stop with the Alaska one. Baked Alaska. Mm, I know. That is very good, though. That's a very, I like that dessert yeah, very yeah. much. On the podcast this week, U.S. and Chinese officials clash during tense meetings in Anchorage. The race to vaccinate the world is becoming a geopolitical problem. And Benjamin Netanyahu's political future is uncertain after his party fails to win an outright majority in Israel's parliamentary elections. Uh, so let's get right to it with the this uh, high-level meeting, a U.S. delegation led by Secretary of State Tony Blinken met with her Chinese counterparts for a few days, right, uh, in Anchorage. We previewed this a bit on the podcast, I think, last week. Um, this meeting, though, turns out not to have been perhaps the cordial exchange some might have hoped. Uh, I don't know if we were expecting it to be anything less than tense. But, Tammy, kick us off. This was a pretty tense meeting and was sort of theatrical, too, with some kind of shaming and posturing on both sides for the reporters and the cameras that were assembled there. Tell us a bit about that. And what was the U.S. objective going into this meeting? Yeah, well, it's an interesting question what the core objectives were on the two sides. I mean, I think what happened was that there was essentially a a violation of the agreed upon protocol and rules for the format of the public part of their meeting. The Chinese would say that the Americans were the ones who breached protocol by bringing up some human rights issues in their public statement. The Americans would say that the Chinese were the ones who breached protocol by speaking to the cameras far, far longer than they were supposed to and lambasting the United States for its own record on democracy and human rights in their opening statement. But essentially what it was was sort of, you know, middle school playground, each side kind of shoving back the shoulders of the other but no actual fight breaking out, right? So it was a little bit of posturing, I think definitely for the domestic audiences of the two sides, but also as a way, as on the playground, of testing the mettle, M-E-T-T-L-E, of the other side, right? How willing are you to stick up for your purported position or your purported principles? And, you know, so on the face of it, this was about democracy and human rights and who has standing to speak about these issues. But I think more deeply, it was about who's strong in the world right now and who's weak. And the Chinese are clearly feeling their oats. They've been pressing their advantage across East Asia. And Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken on this trip tried very, I think, very deliberately to create an impression of strong American pushback by the way they arrived. They arrived in Alaska after a meeting with the Quad, which is the US, India, Australia, and New Zealand, 
And then visits to Japan and South Korea are two treaty allies who are both very, very worried about rising China. And so they arrived to this meeting with the Chinese basically saying, look at all our friends, look at our strong coalition, and we are here to contain you, baby. Hence the the frost. But Tammy, can I ask sort of the sort of the optics of this where, um, you know, the U.S. departs from the scripted statements and then the Chinese delegation says, well, we're going to say what we want to say, too. And then everybody leaves. And then the U.S. is saying, well, no, 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 come back. We have more to say and don't mess with us. Was this all sort of genuine improvisation just sort of happening in front of the cameras? Or is your gut that, no, this was a, a little bit of an orchestra an intentional sort of kerfuffle manufactured on the U.S. side? No, I don't think it was manufactured. I think that uh, at least this is my best understanding based on the reporting. I don't have any like inside scoop here, but the U.S. opening remarks included, you know, they can include whatever they want to include when you're negotiating these bilaterals. You you don't get veto power over the other side's opening statement. So it was almost inevitable that the United States was going to say something about human rights, and the Chinese must have known that. So in, if anyone orchestrated it, I think it's that the Chinese chose to overreact to that and push back really hard. And then it was a question of how U.S. officials were going to respond once the Chinese had seized the mic for like 15 minutes on this tirade. You know, were they going to do what I think earlier eras of American diplomats might have done, which is shrug it off and go on with the meeting, or were they going to push back? And so the choice they made to push back, I think, was the interesting choice. It was to show strength, to show that we're not going to let you have the advantage by seizing the mic, and that if you can be theatrical, we can also be theatrical. I just want to say, though, in support of Susan's point, though I agree with Tamara that it was probably not staged and it was improvisational, I do think Susan's point is correct that it was kind of ideal for both sides, you know, and that if you had staged something, it would have looked very much like this. Because what do the Chinese come in wanting to do? A, to show that they are meeting the United States on equal terms. This is not a system, a circumstance where they are defending their system as, you know, a, a mere pale shadow of sort of less because it's not democratic. They want to show themselves as assertive. They want to emphasize the, the U.S. failures over uh, the last few years. And they want to be uh, bombastic about establishing their interests. And what do you want if you're the new Biden administration? Well, you want to simultaneously show that you're not the Trump administration, which is to say sending mixed messages and uh, coddling authoritarians. You want to show that you are you have a coherent policy that can be articulated and you want to show that. Uh, you are uh, standing up for American interests and values. And this uh, display did both of those things for both sides very effectively. And so I do think there was an element of theatricality to it 
that perhaps while not staged was certainly people functional. people <laughs> noticed the functional value that the stage offered. Yeah, I mean, one article I, I would I would sort of commend to readers is um, by one of our Brookings colleagues, uh, Tom Wright, who who wrote sort of a piece I think it appeared in the Atlantic and it's also uh, up on Brookings as well, entitled "The U.S. and China Finally Get Real with Each Other." Um, and his sort of point was. We were not seeing some kind of diplomatic meltdown or, uh, you know, a, a, like a, a step in the wrong direction. Actually, what we were seeing was something really healthy and productive. And what would have been a bad thing is to have the two sides come, sort of give their bromides about cooperation, knowing full well that the gap between sort of China's rhetoric and actually in actual behavior would just any sort of deal would, would collapse under that pressure is, is the way he phrases it. And actually, you know, what's essential to moving forward is to uh, surface sort of the, the true Chinese intentions to, to, to speak frankly and openly. And, and this is sort of, if we actually have these goals uh, of cooperating on these issues, it's going to depend on kind of addressing these core tensions in, in a clearer way, Tammy. I don't. I don't know if your your instinct was also like, yes, this is a this is a, a good news diplomacy story. Um, sort of despite the lack of maybe niceties. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't have a problem with diplomatic meetings not being smooth and and full of niceness. And I basically agree with Tom that it's important to speak frankly if you want to actually get things done. But I think it's important also not to confuse the public and the private conversations here. I do think there, there was important messaging going on, not just between Washington and, and Beijing, but it was also Washington to the rest of the world, which is, yeah, Trump has created a lot of chaos and dysfunction in our foreign policy over the last several years, but that's over and we know what we're doing and uh, we, we can, you know, we can handle this. I also think that uh, there is some danger in the degree of theatrics. You know, if it's just this one meeting and then they kind of, you know, go behind closed doors and get to brass tacks, that's one thing. But but you create sort of the this public strutting and it increases the risk that sides feel trapped in a certain kind of positioning. It increases the political costs to them of compromise and cooperation and it potentially can raise the risk of unintended escalation or confrontation. I don't think that's a huge risk yet, um, but I do think, you know, when we're looking at things like the way the Chinese are playing games with the Philippines and Taiwan, there are potential risks, and, um, and it's important that the two sides be able to manage those risks away from television cameras. I don't know if I'm the only one who saw it this way, but I'll just throw in my two cents on this. I thought the Chinese delegation came across as quite weak because if you're the, if you're the one pounding the table and yelling and kind of doing the both siderisms here, I mean it makes you seem exceptionally defensive, yes, right, and, and, and to say like you know, to, boy, did you just telegraph to the world that you really don't want to talk about the concentration camps that you've locked people up in, and your country, and you know, to the point about playing to domestic audiences, which of course they were, it almost made me wonder if there was a little bit of Trump kind of dynamic going on here vis-a-vis -vis Xi Jinping and that the delegation was really trying to telegraph back to the boss, like, we're going to stand here and we're going to really stand up for ourselves and give it to the Americans. I don't know. I am not by any means enough of a China analyst to know 
if she expects something like that. But it just seemed like from my perspective, you know, that the Americans just kind of like ran rings around them and the Chinese just fell into the trap of it. And, you know, you you also have the effort on the part of right wing media to portray it as the opposite, Correct. which I thought was interesting. It was really a theme on Fox News. Uh, you know, Chinese delegation run rings, runs rings around Biden. And so they were kind of defensive of it, almost the way they would be if it had been Trump. And it does penetrate, too. I was speaking to somebody who tends to get his news from some of those uh, circles, and he was like, boy, you know, Biden's people got played. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. What do you, why do you think that? And then it was, you know, you could kind of tell that it was coming from the talking point. But uh, yeah, Ben, you can have the last word on the topic. Well, I just want to say that I think there was something symbolically important about this, uh, which is, you know, in an era of climate change, we were going to have a frosty summit. So we did it in Anchorage in a state where you can see Russia. And I just thought that was that we should take a lesson from that when you're going to have, you know, a frosty summit. You should do it in Scandinavian countries, in Anchorage and, you know, in Novosibirsk. Uh, when you're going to have a, a, a nice warm summit, it should be, you know, in the Bahamas and Cancun. Cancun, right? <laughs> and I, I just think it's an important thing. People don't think about the symbolic location of summits weather wise enough. And I I think the Anchorage Frosty Summit is one that we should uh, use as a model for the future. Hey, with climate change in a few years, we can have a warm summit in Anchorage. That's true. It is actually very lovely in the summer. You said Frosty. It makes me think we should have a Wendy's Summit. <laughs> no, because those are terrible shakes. They're terrible. Oh, no. They're hard to drink. They're very hard to drink. Like You really have to like... Yeah, yeah. You know, they're so thick. That's that's a whole topic for another podcast. And we will devote a podcast to the topic of the viscosity. <laughs> ben, this is your next podcast um, on Frosties when you're done Frosties. watching that interminable French program. <laughs> Sarah Longwell, if she's down with some fun podcast about <laughs> fake chocolate milkshake. You know, make fun of the French Village podcast all you want. Oh, I don't listen to it. <laughs> It's uh, it's been fun, and uh, you know, I think all rational security listeners who are enjoying the French Village podcast should tweet at Shane about their appreciation of it. Oh, please come at me, <laughs> please do. All right, let's move on to our next topic. Uh, we we started by talking about vaccines. Uh, and the way that our own podcast seems to be mirroring to some degree uh, the divisions that are emerging more on the global stage uh, about vaccines. Of course, in the United States, the, the Biden administration it, it, it met its goal of 100 million doses in the first 100 days. We could debate whether or not that actually was a, always a fairly plausible goal, even though there were times where it seemed a little bit beyond reach. But now we look at that and go, that part was easy. We blew through it. We blew through it, right? I mean, a number of states, including the district, are on track to open all vaccinations to all people, regardless of age or health conditions or occupation on May 1st. But globally, uh, the picture is more uneven. We've had this uh, a number of controversies, I guess, around the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. And in the EU, it was stopped for a time because there were some suggestion that it might be related to blood clots, even though I think the scientific evidence for that was, I mean, 
I won't say it was non-existent, but I, I struggled to understand precisely how they were concluding that. And now it seems like they've maybe said that, no, these are just coincidental. Uh, but then when AstraZeneca went to apply for its emergency youth, author, youth, youth, emergency youth authorization in the United States, uh, American authorities came back and said, yeah, we think you might be cherry picking this data and that this vaccine may not work as well as you say it does. Or maybe it does, but this is a problem because we don't agree with the data. So that was pretty alarming. Uh, and then the Biden administration has agreed to send some of the AstraZeneca that we have on hand here to Canada and also Mexico, which I think has raised all kinds of questions about, is this some kind of quid pro quo with Mexico for help on security at the border and immigration? Um, China has a vaccine, but there are questions about whether or not it's being transparent with its own data. Singaporean authorities are saying, hey, we want to see more. The Chinese are reluctant. And then there's this whole question about whether or not vaccines are going to be available to developing countries anytime this year, and some countries haven't even vaccinated. So taking all that together, Susan, it seems like we're seeing the emergence of vaccine diplomacy here, vaccine politics. And my first question for you is, is that necessarily a bad thing? The U.S. has right now access to a very large amount, and we'll have more, of a highly valuable resource why shouldn't we use it to our advantage to advance our interests? Or should public health be the only concern that guides the decisions? So I don't know that those are necessarily intention. Um, I do think that the sort of the questions about vaccine diplomacy and vaccine sharing are operating at a lot of different levels. And it's a very complicated sort of not to untangle. So there's a set of vaccines, um, sort of particularly the AstraZeneca vaccine, that the United States has a substantial supply of right now. It is going to expire in the next couple of months. And there's no plausible way that the United States would be able to give emergency use authorization to this vaccine and distribute it in time um, to actually sort of use up this supply. So this sort of seems, at least as it relates to these, you know, I think it's several million doses, um, which is what Canada has been sort of begging for. And, and uh, European countries have been asking, please release these quantities to us. We're ready to use it. Otherwise, it's just going to sort of expire on your shelves. You know, that's basically sort of bureaucratic red tape preventing, I think, what should be a pretty easy decision. I haven't heard a good argument for not releasing those vaccines. Then there's sort of the separate question of, um, should the United States attempt to build a stockpile or start sharing, you know, sort of with with poor countries and, um, and, and really try and share as much as possible? And I think this is a pretty tricky question. It's important that we reach herd immunity and vaccinations that don't push us sort of as a public health matter, like, uh, you know, sort of a, a half vaccinated country is, is not really a safe country. And so I think especially as governments and, and our government is trying to figure out, is this going to be an annual shot that people need to get? Sort of what are the needs going to be over time? Those are hard questions. And people who are saying, you know, you you look like you have a surplus right now. So just sort of throw it over the, the transom and, and let anybody at it. That's a complicated question. And then there's these layers that it's operating in terms of how should the United States be using its purchasing power, its control over patents to basically incentivize 
drug companies to make their vaccine less expensive and more accessible to other countries and other companies to manufacture. That also, to me, I, I think is a little bit in the category of, of course, they should be doing this because we know that the global variants pose a risk to us. And so the, like what might be the the diplomatically beneficial thing to do is is also I think the thing that serves the public health goal, but I, I think right now what's happening is all of those are sort of being flattened into this weird kind of America first type conversation um, that that I don't think is particularly productive. Yeah, I I certainly agree with Susan that this that the America first. Or what I would say, because it's not only the United States, actually, that is taking this attitude. There is a real beggar thy neighbor dynamic in the way a whole lot of governments with access to vaccines are dealing with available supply. And that's understandable, even if it's less than ideal and less than efficient. I think that you're right, Susan, what you say about herd immunity on a half-vaccinated country isn't safe. But... I think at this point, the United States, at least, the government can say, and I think it has said, that it believes it has secured sufficient supply to vaccinate the entire population, or it doesn't have it yet, but it has plans and it will have it. And so that immediately, I think, forces the question of how do we address the vaccine needs of other countries? And so I don't think it's a it's balancing between herd immunity domestically and combating variants globally. I think these things are are sequenced pretty well in the U.S. case. Now, that's not true for European countries, which are way behind on securing sufficient vaccine supply. And that's where we get to the the collective action challenge that is ensuring global vaccination, because we all have a stake in preventing new variants from emerging. We all have a stake in shutting down hotspots of virus transmission globally. We all have a stake in, you know, enabling those things so that we can reopen global travel, global tourism, global commerce, you know, etc. And yet, you know, I think it's very, very hard, given the different places that different countries are at in achieving their own vaccination goals, it's very hard to get the collective decision-making, donations, organization necessary for poorer countries to get access to vaccines. I did want to take on one dimension of the public conversation that I found a little troubling, which is that, you know, appropriately, organizations that are invested in global development and global health are pushing the United States and pushing other developed country governments and donor governments to think hard about how to get vaccines to less developed countries. And they are saying this is in your interest because variants will come from wherever the virus is still circulating. And there are people pushing back on this saying that this is an imperialist discourse or saying that, you know, uh, they should do it because everyone in the world has a right to a vaccine. And I sort of feel like we we have to... We have to get past the framing and understand that self-interest is what motivates foreign policy <laughs> and also to understand that framing something in terms of a government's self-interest is not the same thing as, as an imperialist framing. Um, governments can be self-interested without being imperialists. And so that, to me, has been a sort of unfortunate distraction in the way that this is being debated publicly 
And I wish that I wish that we could get past that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, I, I want to foot stomp that point to use... Susan's uh, favorite expression about emphasizing other people's points. You know, there's a saying in the molecular biology world that a uh, virus cannot mutate if it does not replicate. And, you know, when you have millions of people infected and transmitting this all over the world, it is going to blow back at you, you know, Information wants to be free. Genetic information wants to be free. Viruses uh, want to mutate. Viruses want to replicate. Viruses want to mutate. The only way to make the world safe from COVID is mass vaccination. And that means if you're an American inclined to hoard your vaccine, you're being stupid. And it also means if you're a left critic of American policy who's, say, who's fighting over the reason why you should vaccinate people in countries that can't afford vaccinations, you're also being stupid. The point is that nobody is safe until everybody is safe. And so you need a campaign of eradication of the virus. And that is going to be done through vaccinating everybody. And that is not an imperialist proposition. It's a public health position. Yeah, there is one additional fe- I mean, I, I agree with all of that. And there is one additional feature of the messaging that I, I, I wish we were seeing, sort of hearing more clearly from the government. And that's that this is not like an ordinary market forces type situation where what we really want is for is to allow companies to make lots and lots of money so that they're somehow incentivized to do this in the future. Um, you know, I think governments, the United States government in particular, needs to be clear. The United States government eliminated the risks for these com- for these companies up front by placing orders by making investments by sort of clearing the way and no company should get rich from this essentially companies should be allowed to should should make enough money to incentivize production although they can also be compelled even if uh, the economics aren't necessarily in their favor but like this is not this is not a situation in which it's a reasonable thing to sort of allow companies to benefit from all of this government investment and then hoard it or or say okay we'll cut a deal with the United States but we're going to turn around and jack up the prices everywhere else you know so that 
but we can make these, you know, th these huge costs. And I, I think that sort of that messaging needs to be pretty clear from upfront. And because we are seeing sort of vaccine, uh, you know, pharmaceutical manufacturers already starting to engage in some pretty bad behavior. So the World Health Organization tried to set up a uh, a voluntary sort of tech sharing information, basically, so to allow companies to share how to manufacture uh, these vaccinations, because it's not just sort of, uh, you know, the recipe of the vaccine itself, but actually how do you produce it at scale? And zero companies signed up for it. And so even whenever they're trying to create the mechanisms to allow sort of the sharing of this information, you know, we're seeing companies hoard it and and defend their trade secrets. And so there there is really a space here because of U.S. patent law, because of the role that the United States government has played in sort of in vaccine development thus far to really play the heavy here and say like, no, 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 no. Like you're, you're going to be compensated for, for what you've done here, but this is not an opera. This is not a money making opportunity for you and your shareholders. And, and that's not reasonable. And it's not reasonable even outside the United States. Yeah. The Marshall plan analogy gets overused for everything, but you could <laughs> imagine a Marshall plan type of idea here where the United States basically said, we're going to save the world from a pandemic. Uh, and somebody, you know, kind of put the weight behind it and, and didn't, you know, arguably abdicate that responsibility to Bill Gates and COVAX, which is this sort of fascinating, I guess, non-governmental group that we could talk on another podcast about, but is basically deciding we're making that our mission to try and make this vaccine available to everyone. And it's really kind of a startling contrast to what you think about as a global superpower and the role that we would traditionally have presumed for ourselves. But Tammy, last word. Yeah, look, Covax is uh, generated by the WHO. It has it has non-governmental. Non but I mean, I think it's interesting that you did have these two tracks going. You have the Covax effort, which was slower, and you had this incentivization of drug companies that produced quicker results because the United States and other rich countries were able to pre-purchase doses. But I think what Susan's saying is, you know, you got to treat for this vaccine, you have to treat these companies like a public utility. And that, of course, puts me in mind of the public electricity utilities in Texas. And, you know, that's that's the outcome we don't want. Right. We want yes, everybody to be able to have water, clean water at the tap at a reasonable price. Yes. Well, Benjamin Netanyahu vaccinated. He is vaccinated. But maybe not having the greatest week. Wait, he's vaccinated, but not immunized. Oh, <laughs> I see what you yes. did there, Tammy. Thank you. Very, very nice. Uh, just reading from my colleagues in Jerusalem's coverage, which posted this morning, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's political future was uncertain Wednesday after his coalition failed to secure an outright majority in the country's parliamentary elections. His Likud party appeared to win the most seats in Tuesday's polls, but his path to a governing majority grew more difficult as the official vote count continued. Final results are not expected till later in the week. At the lack of a decisive winner, we report could prolong Israel's political stalemate, raising the prospect of yet another election later this year. People complain about long campaigns in this country. <laughs> But like, it's interminable elections for Israel. Israel has short campaigns. It just has them Lots stacked up. up against each other. This is the fourth one in two years. It's like, would <laughs> you rather fight the horse-sized duck or the... Exactly. <laughs> or the hundred... I don't even remember how it goes. A horse-sized duck. A hundred <laughs> horse-sized ducks. No, a a hundred... Whole, one horse-sized duck 
or a hundred duck-sized horses. Exactly. Oh wow! You have to pick. Well, I tend to like horses more than ducks, but ducks <laughs> are very tasty. Quack. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I know you uh, you find these results particularly interesting. Tell us why. All right. So, I mean, first of all, by any normal politician metric, BB should have won this election very decisively. He has two unique accomplishments over the last year and a half, which you would think would uh, have put him in a position, a strong position with respect to the Israeli electorate. The first is that they have the most successful vaccination campaign in the world in with respect to COVID. And given the burden of COVID in Israel, which is on a per capita basis, uh, not all that different from the burden of COVID in the United States. It's one of the highest COVID penetration countries in the world. Uh, that's a big, big deal. And the second is, and this is not as big a deal to the United in the United States as it is to Israelis, but he has four major peace treaties under his belt uh, with countries that you know did not previously recognize. Israel's existence. And, you know, that's a very, very big deal as well in the context of Israeli politics. And so it is against that background that he performs less well than he did the last election, that he loses votes both to people on the right who are really eager to be rid of him and also to people in the center it is not obvious how he would put a government together based on these election results that did not include both far-right Israeli racists and Islamists whom uh, he has accused of uh, cavorting with terrorists. And uh, while it, the only saving grace for him, honestly, is that it's not clear how anyone else could put a government together either, which means that we may well be headed for a fifth election cycle in, in a little bit more than two years. So it's, it's a really inconclusive result, but it is in no sense a good result for Bibi Netanyahu. Yeah, so I, I guess, you know, Ben's fundamental point is that the surprise is that Bibi didn't win outright because you, you would think that on the political fundamentals he should. And I suppose that's True on the one hand. On the other hand, like the fact that this is where things have ended up is a manifestation of the extent to which Israel's politics, domestic politics, have become politics structured by populism and not by issues and not by policy and not by ideology, you know, not the stuff that elections are supposed to be fought over. This is a multi-party system. We're going to have 13 parties in this new parliament, which is, even for Israel, a large number. And yet the system is completely polarized over one issue, which is not a policy issue. The issue is Bibi or not Bibi. That is what the election was fought over. And those are the forces that are essentially evenly divided in Israel. If this election were not about Bibi, the right part of the Israeli political spectrum, right on religious secular, right on, you know, majoritarianism versus minority rights, right on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, would have a huge majority. If anyone else were the leader of the Likud, there would be a really strong, really large right-wing government. But 
Israel is divided over Bibi, not Bibi. And my friend and colleague, Natan Sachs, is working on a piece that, that I think is making this point and pointing out the degree to which that fact reflects the impact of populist politics in Israel over the last decade, which coincides with Bibi's term as prime minister, and the way in which that's really degraded the ability of Israeli democracy to debate the issues that they actually need to debate. So, uh, Tammy, I mean, what does that mean in terms of what the path forward is then, right? So does Israel just, is it just locked in this sort of perpetual electoral cycles and and trying to, to form and not quite forming governments until some other highly charismatic leader emerges until some scandal is big enough to sort of fell Netanyahu once and for all. Sort of if what you're describing is true and, and it's not really about policy, then then what is the what is the thing that changes the dynamics or or is Israel just kind of trapped in this? I don't think it's trapped in it forever because it will get resolved in one of two ways. I mean, the reason that Netanyahu has been so desperate and willing to ally with anyone, including the heirs of the terrorist Mayor Kahana, with whom he allied in this election, and the Northern Islamist movement, with whom he allied in this election, you know, he's willing to ally with them both for the sake of keeping himself as prime minister, which grants him uh, the possibility of winning immunity from the corruption trials that he is now enmeshed in. He is now on trial for corruption as a sitting prime minister. So either he'll get immunity, in which case he will remain as a party leader, but he can move on to things that are actually substantive on policy terms, or he will fail to win a majority and win immunity, in which case eventually this criminal trial will likely remove him from political life. Yeah, and and I also think that there are important signs in this election that the dynamic is already changing. In the last election, the fundamental divide was a right versus right religious versus center left divide. And in this election, two things happened that were different. One was a party formed entirely of right-wingers who were anti-Bibi, so that there were, who made clear that they would be willing to be in coalition with centrists and, and potentially leftists to get rid of Bibi. And the second was that the Arab Islamists broke off from the larger Palestinian uh, party, the, the, the joint list, because they wanted the latitude to potentially do business with either side. And they also, they're not lefties like, like the joint list. And, and so I do think you have, as Tamara describes, this reorientation of at least the current political alignment to a BB versus no BB thing. And, and that is different uh, and a different dynamic once you don't have the whole right unified behind Bibi, you know, you have the opportunity, at least in the short term, to break up what has been a very monopolistic hold he has on the right side of the political spectrum. So so here's the thing to watch. Naftali Bennett's party, which, which is the party Ben was referring to, that's right wing and religious, but at least has been anti-Bibi. Like, are they going to remain anti-Bibi? 
in which case he will not be able to form a coalition? Or are they going to uh, change their minds the way Bibi's opposition did last time and end up in a coalition with him? Uh, Naftali Bennett is now the kingmaker of Israeli politics. I, I mean, one thing that not to bring like the domestic U.S. focus to everything, but at least the comparative politics or the comparative sort of constitutional structures of it, as we see the Israelis, the UK and the United States uh, and places like Brazil and, and elsewhere sort of grapple with these rising sort of right wing populists who come to power and seeing sort of whose systems are better designed and so and, and better designed to respond to to sort of these threats and um, the U.S. system, which is kind of big risk, big reward, right? So Donald Trump is gone. We are not having an election every couple of months. Like that is, it's sort of a decisive thing. But that was a pretty close call. And had Trump uh, managed to win re-election, our ability to self-correct would be really dramatically sort of diminished. It's just sort of, we'll, we'll need more time to sort of learn the lesson and get the historical perspective here. But I do think it is like pretty fascinating real-time experiment just to see these really, really different structural systems grapple with kind of similar threats and features. And, and like, you know, three systems enter one comes out, right? Like, what is the thing that's that's best designed to uh, to withstand this and withstand this moment? Wait, are we we're the duck sized horse, or are we the horse sized duck? We're, I think the United States analogy is we're uh, we're fifty duck sized horses, horses, all united together. I, don't, I think the United States is one horse sized duck. duck. Yeah, it's duck. one big ducking horse. Right. <laughs> there you go. Uh, all right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, ben, you can go first since you've you've been you've been holding it. So uh, I wasn't. This has nothing to do with national security, but since we talked uh, about my uncle and his efforts to do a podcast a number of years ago, published, I want to say, by Spaghetti on the Wall Productions, which was the original publisher of Rational Security. I want to draw your attention to what I think is the most incredible story I've ever heard told on a podcast, which uh, was my uncle's interview with a guy named Barry Blanchard. And Barry Blanchard uh, is one of the great alpine climbers and tells this story of being uh, stuck in the late 1980s on the largest climb in the world, which is the RuPaul face of a mountain range in the Himalayas called Nango Parbat, and being hit with a a half-hour-long avalanche and losing his ropes. It is the most incredible outdoors story told in this this very thoughtful and uh, low-key way and my uncle, who is, you know, an extreme adventurer himself and has done adventures that are on the front page of the New York Times, is in awe of this story in this interview in a way that is quite adorable for those who know him. And he starts it by saying that a, a big rock wall in the Himalayas is the most forbidding environment in the world bar none. And he talks about why. And so if you want 
a good little yarn apropos of nothing. Here it is. It's called So You Think You've Known Fear from Exploring Deep Wilderness, and we'll post a link to it. It's a rather intimidating title. Uh, Susan. So my object lesson is I went back to the office and attempted to visit the jungle studio. I actually did not have the key, so I wasn't able to open it. I have some bad news, which is that the plants are dead, really dead, Uh like fire hazard, (laughs) just, I don't know what I thought I was going to be met with, but the jungle studio is surely um, some form of plant massacre. Um, but I went back into my office for the first time. I, I've been like, I haven't, I didn't actually go into my office over the summer. I like, you know, just grabbed stuff from, uh, from our common areas. So I went into my office for the very first time in a year. Um, and on my desk, I had left, it was like going like visiting Pompeii. Like there was like kind of, everything was perfectly preserved, but there was like weird dust. Um, and I had left a copy of Ben in my book on my desk, which, um, and I'd left the window open and I'd put, we have these little, um, like lawfare branded notebooks. And I had set one on top of this book before I left a year ago. And whenever I went in today, they fused, they've become exactly, <laughs> they've become one. Uh, no, but the sun had bleached the impression like our book, which of course, all of you listeners own multiple copies of and read on a regular basis. It's <laughs> a very elaborate. You might plug. recall is like has a beige background, and so whenever I removed this notebook, um, I just sent you guys a link to it. You could see the impression because a year of sun had wow. like bleached the book. It was such so a spooky, surreal, weird thing. So I feel like I should do something with the cover. I should like frame it as our. It's like nuclear winter. Exactly. Or So that's my object lesson, this like this weird book cover and what exactly I should do with it now. I like it. It's definitely an artifact of our time. Your suggestions for what Susan should do with her bleached book cover at Susan Hennessy. Excellent. That'd be fun. (laughs) Speaking of tweets at me, my object lesson this week, you might think, and I want to thank all of our loyal listeners who reminded me that, yes, on June 1st, we're supposed to see this long-awaited declassified intelligence report about unidentified aerial phenomenon as if this was news to me. (laughs) Thank you. He knew that already. Thank you. The number of people, by the way, who are outraged that someone other than me is writing about that story for the Washington (laughs) Post. That's what you need. You need people who like defend your beat aggressively. To your totally. own employer. Like, you just decided this is my beat. Right, 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 right. I just have them send them letters to our, you know, our interim, interim editor. I've replied to a few people saying, like, how do you know I'm not secretly the assignment editor? <laughs> the, the other thing is, you know, Shane only writes about the real aliens. Totally. The unidentified flying objects that are actually frisbees. Yeah, other people get You it. know, other people get to do those. But if, if you see a story about real aliens, Shane's hoarding that for himself. Definitely, definitely. But no, I have a different story uh, kind of from from beyond as well, but it's an update to something we talked about on the podcast some months ago, I think, and Tammy has flagged to me other stories about this. But remember Amuamua? Remember like the big cigar-shaped Oh, yeah. Yeah, that were like, is it an asteroid? Is it a comet? What is this? But this interstellar uh, object that traveled through our solar system, which I think was the first one we'd ever spotted. And then there was this big debate. And I think actually an Israeli scientist wrote a whole book about like why he thought this was actually 
an extraterrestrial craft or the remnant of one. Well, not so fast. So there's a new study out that says that this object could be a piece of basically a planet like Pluto um, that got blasted off the planet, probably by uh, impact with another object, Uh, And is essentially kind of just like a remnant just floating around through space after an asteroid broke it off, sent it careening into the cosmos. Fucking rock. (laughs) (laughs) It's a giant rock. Yes. Thank you. That's the bottom line up front. But yeah, that basically like and it kind of got like eroded and shaved off by solar forces probably along the way. And I think I won't go into all of it. We'll post a link to the story on the show page. But basically coming up with some fairly straightforward uh, explanations why the evidence supports that. No, this is actually not at all an extraterrestrial craft. Um, and it's just a big old rock. And if you think that's going to quiet the people who say otherwise, <laughs> guess yeah. again, naturally. But nevertheless, it's a fun art. It's a fun article. And um, I was very depressed, though, I must say, by the ending of it, which was like, you know, we were people saying like, oh, you know, maybe we'll we'll see more of these objects and, uh, and we'll be able to compare them and know for sure what it really was. And as this guy says at the end, basically the likelihood of an object like this ever passing through our solar system ever again is basically zero. So, no, this may have been your first and your last look until, of course, they actually send the probe. Right. And then you will know. You will know. And it will be amazing. And Shane will report it. But for now, we're going to wrap it up. Yeah, I will be writing that story. But for now, we're going to wrap it up this week. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall. No, it's not. It's a production of Lawfare. Oh God damn. No, no, Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Remember that? Ugh. Yeah. That it's was our little company. Today. Was our tiny little company? Is the only res- remaining output of spaghetti on the, the wall? vestigial output? Yeah, spaghetti on the wall productions. Like the appendix. Yeah, exactly. You can find our show page on lawfareblog.com. You can find um, rational security themed plastic appendices. Sure. Sure. Uh, d- yeah, do at home right. like dissection. I don't know something. That's- that's gross. That was gross. Why did I say that? You're too deep. <laughs> just just commit to it. I couldn't turn back. We have those mannequins where you can take the organs out and it's yeah. like different episodes. Yes, it's great. It's amazing. You can find that on Amazon. You can follow us on Twitter <laughs> at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Mysteriously, we're still on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. And share us. Oh, and share us. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Push that little share button. Do it. Just post it. Just tell everyone. You're going to get your vaccine. You're going to go back to your offices. Just tell everyone. Get a little sticker. I got vaccinated while listening to Rational Security. You're probably standing in line waiting for a vaccine right now while you're listening. (laughs) Tell the person behind you or in front of you in line or the person giving you the jab about the podcast. It's great. Our audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Tony Blinken with his jazzy cover of the Foreigner classic, Cold as Ice. I like it. Oh yeah, yeah. totally play that. We're looping too. back to the right? beginning of the episode, so this often happens. <laughs> really yeah. taking the listeners on a journey. That's, that's <laughs> we promise here every week. We really do. <laughs> and good Sophia Yan Keys. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 